Good morning, everybody. Today we're going to continue our uh, series in characters of the Old Testament. We uh, talked about Saul three weeks ago, I think it was. David two weeks ago. We did a little pause and talked about a guy you probably hadn't heard of last week in Mephibosheth. I think it was a cool story, though, that kind of connected Saul and David together. And today we're going to look at David's son, Solomon. So what's happened, obviously, is Saul is the first king of Israel. Doesn't do a real great job. So God says, hey, I'm going to pick somebody else to do this because you're not doing it very well. So he picks King David. David has mostly success. We saw some of his failures, though, a few weeks ago. Uh, like the rest of us, he wasn't perfect. But he had a heart, at least, that was after God. Now we come to his son, Solomon. Now Solomon is going to be king over Israel in probably one of its greatest moments of history and one in which it has the most power it may ever have held is when Solomon is, is king. And he benefits certainly from the wisdom and leadership of his father. So we're going to jump in with, with Solomon. You've probably, uh, you've probably heard a, things, a few things about him. I want to jump in here with, with Solomon. And, and really, this passage is, I've shown you this passage because it displays kind of Israel's power at this point in history. So Solomon, in 1 Kings 3, 1 through 3, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord, and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt, in, and burnt incense on the high places. A high place was a place in which people would gather for worship. Now the problem with the high place when we're talking about it here is some of these high places are good, some of these were established to worship God, the God of the Israelites. And some of these places had been established to worship gods of their neighbors. And so that's the trouble we have with the idea of the high place, is sometimes when, they, when Israelites were going to the high place, they were going to worship their God. And sometimes when they went to the high place, they were committing idolatry. They were there to worship somebody else's God. And that's the reason that we have exception of it here at the, in, in, in verse 3. It's saying, hey, Solomon is, and, and the Israelites themselves are kind of commingling in the culture and the religious identity of the people that are around them. And we, all, we know the Old Testament, God was very clear about saying, hey, I'm God, I'm the only God, and you're not going to worship any other gods. why he made it one of the Ten Commandments, right? And the problem we're having with Solomon is he's not really following that to the letter of the law. It's the cultures around him and the gods that the other people around them worship are kind of seeping into the Israelites' culture. And you're going to see this as we go through Solomon's life, that this is going to progressively get worse and worse and worse throughout his life. But what I wanted to point out to you in the very beginning of this is look who Solomon has made an alliance with. Now this is showing you the power of the Israelites at this point of history because the Egyptians throughout this time had been a very powerful nation. Remember, the Egyptians are the ones who had enslaved the Israelites. Right? The whole exodus was because of the fact that the Egyptians had power over the Israelites and had made them their slaves. And here roughly... 400 or so years later, the Israelites have risen to the point where they are co-equals, if maybe even, possibly even, just as or maybe more powerful than Egypt themselves. It's a pretty, pretty amazing story from 400 years of being earlier, had been slaves, to now being equal with this, this huge power in Egypt. Now, of course, the Egyptians have gone through their own struggles and their, their power had diminished some, but the Israelites are, are essentially standing toe-to-toe with Egypt. Now, as we're going to see throughout Solomon's story, Solomon's going to marry all kinds of women from other countries. Now, the purpose of these marriages, this, like the marriage of the, uh, 
the daughter of the, the Pharaoh of Egypt, is, is purely political. It's for alliance purposes. Now, these poor women are just the pawn that's in the game, but Solomon may not even really know her name, probably had never spent any time with her. So these marriages are just for political power and alliances. It's like sighing a tree, essentially. So keep that in your mind as we go through this. The story continues in verse 4 through 6. As the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. Now that is a high place where they're actually worshiping God, the true God. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. That's quite a question, quite a promise that God gives to Solomon. While Solomon's sleeping in his dream, God appears to him in a vision and says, hey, any, anything you want, ask for it. Now that's a, that's a, that's a blank check, right? Now if you pause for a second and think about, about you and your life and the worries and the concern that you have, whether it's finances or whether it's health or whatever it is, the things that bothers you the most, the thing that you, that you think in your mind, man, if this was gone, life would be really great. And God came to you and asked you that question, what would your answer be? I think for a lot of us, it'd probably be our health, right? I mean, if you don't have your health, what do you have? I mean, you can have all kinds of money, but if you don't have health, you don't, maybe some of us, it would be money. Maybe finances is our, is our major concern in life, right? It's just how are we going to survive to the next paycheck? Whatever it might be, whatever that answer would be, compare it to the answer that Solomon gives. Because this is one of Solomon's High points. This is one of his good moments in verse 6. He answers, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? What does Solomon ask for? It's not wealth. It's not power. It's not even health. He says, God, uh, you've given me a job, and right now I'm not quite sure if I can live up to it. I'm not quite sure I can do this job very well. So what I ask of you is a discerning heart. I want some wisdom to be able to govern these people and give me the ability to distinguish what is right and what is wrong. Now, in a le- as a leader, lots of decisions have to be made. That's what leadership is, right? Is, is making some decisions that nobody else wants to make. And so Solomon knows that. He's able, at least at a young age, to realize, hey, this is not going to be an easy task that I've been given. And so, God, I'm going to need wisdom. I'm going to need the ability to choose, to make the right choice when that time comes. Shows us a little bit that Solomon, Solomon excuse me, has a little bit of that heart that his father had, right? Because instead of choosing something that's going to benefit himself, choosing a gift of wealth or health or whatever it is, Solomon says, hey, I want, I want you to give me a gift. I want you to give me this thing that will, I'll be able to bless other people with. What a great attitude great heart and a great mind after God of asking when you can have anything of asking for something that's going to bless other people because that's been the point all along 
from the time in which God called Abraham to so you and me sitting here in this church today, God's people have always been designed, have always been gifted with the abilities, their talents, their strengths to bless others. To be a blessing not just to ourselves, but to the blessing to the community and the people we find around us. So whatever your gift is, and you probably have more than one, whatever ability that God has given you, you can use it to bless others. It's the point, it's the reason why he gave it to you. It's to be a light that will shine. Now this is, I believe, one of Solomon's great, great moments of him saying, God, I need this gift just so I can, can bless others. And look how God responds to Solomon. So the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will, be, will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. God's pleased with Solomon's answer, right? He says, yeah, Solomon, you're getting it. It's exactly what I wanted to hear. I wanted you to know how important the role you play in this community is. And so you answered it. And he says, not only am I going to give you what you asked for, I'm going to give you above and beyond that. But I'm going to give you wealth that you didn't ask for. I'm going to give you power and honor that you didn't ask for. But what's really, really important, guys, in this passage is verse 14. It's conditional. The wisdom, the discernment, the honor, the wealth is conditional. And the conditions are found in verse 14. Anytime you make a covenant, if you've bought a house and you signed your name about 637 times, right, on that you're signing an agreement that you're going to live up to your end of the bargain, right? When you get married, when you stand up and get married, and you make those vows, what are you doing? You're making an agreement. You're making a covenant. Saying, I'm going to do my part. As long as when you do your part and I do my part, and everything's going to be fine. So God gives Solomon these things, but he says you have to live up to your end of the bargain. You have to do your part. And verse 14 is that part. And what does God say to Solomon? And if, if, there's a condition, you walk in obedience, keep my decrees, my commands, I will give you a long life. Because if you do this, these gifts are yours forever. If you don't live up to your end of the bargain, those gifts can be taken back. Because remember, they're not Solomon's to begin with. Like our gifts, the gifts that God has has given you, aren't yours. They're his. He's just given them to you. You're the vessel. You're the one in which he's going to administer them to the world through. So if we don't live up to our end of the bargain, God says, hey, I'm not, I don't have to live up to mine. As you're going to see, Solomon's going to struggle living up to his end of this bargain. And remember, as we go through the rest of the section, what that bargain was, obedience and keeping God's decrees, 
and his commands. Solomon's going to struggle. As you're going to see the country, the nation of Israel is going to struggle also because of Solomon's struggles. The story continues in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 6. I'm going to just summarize it for you. Solomon begins, begins to build the temple that his father David had so desired to build. But God had said, David, since you were a warrior, since you were a man who had spilled blood, you're not going to build this temple. Your son's going to build it. And you can look in chapter 6 and get the descriptions. You can also get online and just Google Solomon's temple. The temple is, is marvelous, right? Parts of that whole temple are covered in gold uh, with cedar planks and stone. And I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous temple that Solomon constructs. Again, shows us the kind of wealth and power that the nation of Israel has at this point of history. And Solomon's temple is, is absolutely gorgeous. The temple begins to be built after the, after the Israelites had been out of bondage to Egypt for 480 years. So it takes 480 years for the, for the Israelites to get freed from, from slavery in Egypt to building, starting the construction of the temple. Solomon is four years into his reign when the temple begins. And it takes them seven and a half years to build the temple. And if you read that description, you'll know why. The temple is, is a beautiful temple. Great and amazing craftsmen in the nation of Israel had, had built that temple. And so the temple is constructed. The temple is obviously the place in where God's going to dwell. And the nation of Israel can come and they can sacrifice to him. And get rid of all those high places that they've had up in this point. They can all be gone because the temple is, is now here. Now the temple... It's probably the crowning jewel of Solomon's achievement. And here in verse 11, we're going to see the, the beginning of his downward spiral. Solomon hits the peak too early, hits the mountaintop, and now he's coming back down to the valley, and it's coming, he's coming down in a hurry. Now, I hopefully, throughout this series, we have, you have seen, and I've tried to do my best to show you, that one, none of us are perfect, including these heroes of the Bible, that they all, we've all made mistakes, we've all sinned, we all fall short as Paul said in Romans chapter 3. But that's what I really have wanted to show you is that it's, it's really important to end well. That while we hope, as human beings, that people will judge us on our greatest moments, we're often judged on our worst. It's just the fact of the life. You can do a hundred great things and one really terrible thing, and what happens? Your legacy is the one terrible thing. You spend all these years of doing great, great things and then you, you mess up in the end and, you know, and we're remembered for the, the mess up. And sadly for Solomon, this is going to be true. He did a lot of great things and yet here at the end, he's not going to end well. That's why I believe legacy is so important for us of starting the race well, of running the race well, and finishing the race well. That's a legacy that, that can't be beat. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. What was the condition that God gave Solomon for those gifts he gave him? Obedience. And what is the author here telling us Solomon's not doing? He's not being obedient. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. First of all, 700 wives and 300 concubines, this dude's an idiot, right? I mean, he's... <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but one is plenty. I don't, 
Now, obviously, most of these, like we talked earlier, are those marriages that are just for treaties. They're just political reasons. Solomon probably doesn't know most of their names. But any doesn't matter, right? That's more than enough. And what those wives have done to Solomon is they bring their gods to the equation, right? They come from a different culture, and so they have all these other gods and goddesses they worship, and they bring them in. And what's happening to Solomon is Solomon's heart's being led astray from the one true God. Verse 4 tells us, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. He's chasing after other gods. One of the big ten, right? Ten commandments says, you will have no other god before me. So we're seeing Solomon go down that path that we worry so much about going down ourselves. The worst part about it is in verse 5, where a few gods are mentioned. Ashtoreth is a fertility god. But Molech is, is one of the worst creation of human beings in all of history. You can read about the god Molech in 2 Kings further. Look him up online when you get home. The god of Molech was often associated with child sacrifice. So they would make a statue of Molech with his arms out like this and they would put a fire under those arms that were made of some type of metal. And they would heat his arms up until they were red hot and they would place their children on those arms. And so when David chases, or excuse me, when Solomon chases after the God of Molech, it's, it, it's game over. God can't put up with that. So there's one thing God won't put up with is human sacrifice. He can't stand it. As a matter of fact, when you get to the New Testament and you see Jesus, who's almost the exclusive person who uses the word hell, that, that word hell is Gehenna. And that word, we believe, is trans- it's kind of been transferred from the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which was outside of Jerusalem. Where if you read in 2 Kings, some Israelites chased after this god, Molech, and sacrificed their children to him. And so when Jesus uses the word hell in the New Testament, He's bringing back echoes of this God Molech, of saying, if you want to know what hell's like, it's when people take their children and they kill them for no reason. That's what hell's like. And so when I can't stress to you enough of how far Solomon has strayed from our God. He has gone down a path and a course that is abominable to our God, which is unimaginable to God and his people. It's not that just Solomon has a little statue of another god in his house that he lights incense to. It's that he's chasing after a god in which is detestable to our god. It doesn't get any better from here. Verse 7, it says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place to Shamash, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. 
I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. 1 Kings 11, 7-13 is God's not playing. He says, nope, we're done. No more. No more. What I want you to see in verse 9 is that this is personal to God. Verse 9 tells us that the Lord becomes angry with Solomon because his heart has turned away from him. At the very end, just a few words, but it's very personal from God. It says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. It's God saying, Hey, Solomon, I know that you know I'm real. You want to know how I know that? Because I appeared to you two times. So other people who have never seen me and yet have faith and can believe in me, they're doing it essentially blindly. But you, Solomon, I appeared to you twice. Like we met face to face and this is what you've done to me. You've turned your back on me. I believe that that, this section is a very personal response from God to Solomon saying, how can you and how dare you and how could you? How could you do this, man? After all I've done for you, after appearing to you, after you've seen me twice, you could still turn your back on me like this? You could chase after these terrible gods who commit horrible atrocities? How could you? And we see that God is serious and says no more. The kingdom in which you were going to have, that your son was going to have, and his son was going to have, and his son after that, it's over. We're done. The other thing I wanted to show you in this section of is the legacy that David leaves. Now, we saw David's not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. Matter of fact, he makes some very terrible decisions in his life. But when he's caught, when he got busted, when we read that a few weeks ago, his response was one of repentance, of one of saying, God, you know what? You're right, and I'm wrong. And he had a heart that, while it wasn't perfect, would go back to God, right? would chase after him and him alone. And because of that, because of David's heart, because of David's character, because of who David was, the, God doesn't wipe Solomon completely off the face of the earth. It's only because of who his father was. You see it, right? It says, nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, two different times, for David's sake, I won't, I won't rip it away from you while you're alive. And for David's sake, I'll leave you guys one tribe that you can take care of. And what a neat idea of legacy of that God can spare somebody because of who their father or mother was. That God will take a little more kindness, a little more empathy and compassion and pity for that person simply because of the legacy that somebody else left that came before them. Because we see this all throughout the Old Testament. The only reason Israel survives and isn't wiped off the face of the earth is because of the legacy that the righteous, the faithful, had left for them as they come down. And God is patient with them, even though time and time and time again they do just what Solomon does, right? If you read the Old Testament, it's a story of, of, God, of God doing everything he can for his people. And, they, and for a while, they're faithful. And then after a little while, what happens? They grow farther and farther apart from God to the point in which they don't even know who God is anymore. And they're chasing after everything else. And then God sends a prophet, someone to speak to them, saying, hey, you need to turn around. And so they do for a while, right? And then over and over and over again, we see this pattern of God's people not acting like they belong to him. 
acting as if God's not that important in their life. And Solomon's a great example of it. But we can be the legacy. We can be the David in our family. The person who passes down faithfulness and righteousness to the generation that comes after us. And even if they don't always listen, even if they aren't always being faithful, we've given them that legacy. And I believe God will honor that legacy. He'll do everything he can with them to pull them back to him. Solomon's life ends pretty uneventfully, guys. He tarnished his legacy. He made the mistake he should have never mistake made, and this is how it ends for Solomon in chapter 11, verse 41 through 43. It says, As for the, the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. And then you know what happens? Chaos ensues. It's a great lesson for us to learn. That no matter how great the gift is that God has given us, if we aren't faithful, it's all for naught. Solomon had the gift of wisdom, discernment, administering justice, and yet he couldn't do it in his own life. And so because he couldn't do it in his own life, what happens to everybody else? As the leader of the nation of Israel, everybody else suffered. And isn't that true of sin? There's no sin that you and I will ever commit that just affects us. That's just, well, it's just about me. No, every sin we commit affects our spouse, our kids, our coworkers. Every wrong choice we make has a consequence. It does. Now, you and I have the benefit of living on this side of the cross where we know we're guaranteed forgiveness for our sin, that we put our faith and our trust and our hope in this Jesus who was without sin, who was the perfect sacrifice, and our sins are forgiven. But that doesn't mean the consequences of our sins are gone. The consequences are still there. When we hurt that person, when we say that thing, there's still consequences to be held. So the same challenge, the same decree that was given to Solomon is given to you and me. Don't forsake our God and be obedient to the best of our ability. When we do those things, we live a life well-lived and we give a legacy that goes on forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank the opportunity we have to gather here and to read about Solomon, a man who had many great moments in his life, but Father sadly ended by not being obedient to you, by not fully trusting in you. Father, we ask that you would help us to make sure that the same cannot be said of us. But as we run this race of faith, as we put our faith, our hope, and our trust in you, that you would help us to ensure that we do that through every day of our lives. Father, we want to not just start well, but we want to end well too. And so, Father, we know that the only way we do that is, is through you and your spirit. So, Father, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance in everything that we do. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that your son Jesus made for us so we could be forgiven of our sin. And that we could be assured of a place, a great place, that we'll go someday when this life is over. A place where we get to see you face to face. Father, we thank you. 
And we love you. And it's in your son Jesus' powerful and healing name we pray. And all God's people said. Amen, amen.